Hello, and welcome back to Things Are Going Great For Me, a podcast about the arts and the entertainment business. My name is J. Claude Deering. I'm an actor and a comedian. If you're new here, welcome. Pull up a chair and get comfortable, because we want you all to enjoy yourselves. Work out if you want to. If you're listening in your car, maybe roll down the window, crank up the volume so others can listen in. That's not a weird thing. On each episode of this series, you'll hear from huge movie stars, big TV stars, and even some bright, shining Broadway stars, as well as second guest interviews with exciting up-and-coming comics and actors and established producers, authors, and writers. We banked all of the episodes, which also makes this series a time capsule of events that occurred throughout an historic summer. You can follow me, your host, at Deering on both Twitter and Instagram, and you can follow our show handles on Twitter and Instagram at Things Are Going Great For Me. There you'll find our link tree that has links for our email list and Patreon. On our Patreon, you'll find bonus RSS feed interview coverage from some of our guests, including further insights about the future of the entertainment business, plus exclusive photos and videos, some truly funny moments that happened with our guests during technical difficulties, and more. Much more. So much more. Here we are, episode five. We're halfway through our limited series, or it could be halfway through season one. It's entirely up to you. Demand more and we'll make more. So if you like any of what you hear today, do us a kindness. Subscribe to the show, leave us a nice comment, tell your aunt about us, give us those five stars wherever you're getting your podcast from today. Hey, Apple Podcast peeps, we see you Spotify folks. Hey now, Stitcher fam. What's up, you freaky pocket casts, cats? Hey, Breaker brethren and sistren. Salutations, radio public people. Hello, you overcast outroverts. Welcome to the party, Google podcasters. We love you all equally, and we hope you love what you hear, and we want to keep bringing you new episodes of this show. And by the way, we're thrilled to be sponsored for this limited series by Icelandic Glacial, the purest tasting water on Earth, sourced from the legendary Ulfus Spring in Iceland, naturally filtered through ancient lava rock, and certified carbon neutral for both product and operation. You are what you drink. Be a force of nature. Icelandic Glacial, natural spring water, sourced from Iceland. Available on Amazon, IcelandicGlacial.com, and a retailer near you. Today's guest is Chantal Tui. Chantal plays Grace Choi on the CW's Black Lightning. She also played the role of Minnie in Pulitzer Prize winner Tracy Letts' new Broadway play, Linda Vista. We talk about her extraordinary past year shooting a TV show while simultaneously starring on Broadway, her activism with the organization Build Power, and the process of optioning a book for a Hollywood adaptation. She's a thoughtful and incredibly talented artist with a fast-rising career. I'll be speaking with her in a few minutes. And a little bit later, you'll also get my conversation with Jordan Barbour. Jordan was nominated for Best Featured Actor in a Play on Broadway as part of the inaugural Antonio Awards for Black Theater Artists for his performance as Tristan in The Inheritance Play, a show that Time Magazine called the most important play of the century. The show was closed down prematurely because of COVID, so he talks about what happens in a business where the show must go on, and suddenly, it doesn't. He's toured the world with many celebrated theater productions. I've known Jordan a long time. It's a great chat. Stick around. You're not going to want to miss it. Joining me again today is my producer and co-host, Winston Carter. Howdy, how you doing? <laughs> Good man. So today <laughs> today is specifically a Broadway-heavy episode. Um, it is. In fact, both guests starred in Broadway plays that would likely have competed against each other at this year's Tony Awards. This year's Tonys are, are currently postponed, but are likely to proceed at some point. Um I asked you the other day if you'd seen a Broadway show. You said you'd been to the Pantages in Los Angeles, which is basically, Once. yeah, I mean, that's basically what seeing like a Broadway musical and what it feels like. What what show okay. did you see? 
I saw Book of Mormon. That's the only oh, professional yeah. show I've ever seen. Well, that's... I've been in some, uh, like, like you know, I've performed in, like, some smaller plays at, like, real theaters uh, growing up. But, yeah. yeah, that's the only, like, real show I've seen. You and I are very different people when it comes to the theater. Uh, okay. And like, you've li- you really live in that life. Yeah, yeah, sure. And I'm much more coming from a, I mean, even though I've done some theater, and I certainly, like, you know, like everyone who performs, I did a bunch of theater in high school. Yeah, uh, sure. And, but haven't, I don't think I've done a play since then. Have you ever seen a play so, with no singing or dancing at a professional theater? At a pro- defined professional. Meaning that, you know. I have seen plays with no, I have seen fringe plays. Nah. Uh, but I don't know. No, it doesn't count. Doesn't count. Uh, then no, then no, I haven't. I see. I think you'd be the biggest theater head. I'm into the idea. I really like the concept of uh, things that don't resonate on a screen resonate more in theater because I'm in the room with the people that it's happening to. Oh, yeah. Which is like kind of how I view it is like is like theater. The point of theater, especially when it's really well acted, is that it should feel like I'm if I'm in a if I'm in an airport and two people are having a fight. Yeah. I'm kind of like watching them like have a fight. That's the feeling I should have in good theater. Yeah, sometimes. Absolutely. I think you're right. Yeah. Del- to me. So to me. Della Saba said it really well in our episode, too. If theater is bad, it's horrible. When theater is great, it's really great. Theater, it's kind of like fine art or stand-up in that it's like it's amazing what people can do with a space or or with a performance. I need to, I should watch some. I would like to. I really should. I think you'd love a play. Do, yeah. um, there's a play called The Humans by Stephen Karam that I think you'd really like it. It, it touches on themes of nine 11, but it it's basically, it's a Eugene O'Neill sort of dysfunctional yeah. kitchen sink family drama okay. crossed with some, uh, Connor McPherson, Irish ghost story mm-hmm. kind of stuff. It happens on like two floors of a, of a, a walk up in Chinatown in New York. This family's getting together for Thanksgiving and then sort of sad things get revealed over the course of dinner. The dad is cheating on the mom. One of the daughters mm-hmm. is dying. I think of a liver condition, which by itself Oof. could may still sound boring, except that with each mounting family admission, shit in the apartment starts to fall apart. Like on the mm-hmm. second floor, oh, like, cool. like a light goes out in an upstairs room. Um, a pan slides off the kitchen counter until the whole building kind of implodes. It's it's super I'm into haunting. This. Yeah, it's haunting in like the board. best way. Well, I'm going to I'm going to take you to see some theater. All right. I won't steer you wrong. And then you can buy like a thimble's worth of booze at intermission for like 15 bucks a bob. <laughs> great. Perfect. It'll be a great time. Oh, I did want to bring up uh, uh, because it's a Tracy Letts thing. And as oh, yeah. an, as a Tulsa, Oklahoman. Oh, yeah. Uh, which I believe is where Tracy's from. It has Maybe. to be. Yeah. Uh, well, no, because so where's so where is Osage so, County? So this is a thing is I used to live. I grew up like from the age of three till 10. So those really formative years, my house backed up to like the road that was at our the end of our backyard was the edge of Osage County. Oh, no kidding. So that I oh, like wow. so like when they talk about that, I'm like, oh, I, I know Osage County. I'm very familiar with it. Like I have spent a lot of years of my life driving around Osage County getting drunk in lakes and going to weddings out there. Yeah. Yeah. So, it's, so Tracy Letts as, as a playwright and an, uh, creator, like a lot of stuff that like really resonates very specifically with my upbringing. All right, folks, <laughs> once again, you've been very patient with us without further ado here now is the wonderful Chantal Tui. 
Now, so you're currently on Black Lightning on the CW. Um, the show is groundbreaking for portraying an African-American superhero family on a major network. Um, you play Grace Choi, a character from a DC series called The Outsiders. And because of starting a relationship with Black Lightning's daughter, Thunder, a.k.a. Anissa Pierce, played by Nafisa Williams, Grace Choi becomes a crossover character. In the comics, Grace Choi has superhuman strength and healing powers, but in your TV series, I believe she's a shapeshifter. <laughs> did, I, did I get that yeah. right? <laughs> that, that's 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 it. <laughs> Am I right so far? Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. Exactly. I just wanted to say all that out loud just to see if I could do it. Um, mm-hmm. That's really exciting. And uh, Grace Choi's relationship with Anissa Pierce is also groundbreaking for depicting a gay superhero couple on TV. Is that correct? Yeah. All very exciting. Now, the, f- the first X-Men movie uh, came out all the way back in 2000, mm-hmm. which felt, to me anyway, as the beginning of two decades of Marvel and DC conquering Hollywood. Um, mm-hmm. What do you think is inherently valuable in superhero stories? Um, are they our century's morality plays, or are, are they escapist uh, wish fulfillment? You know, I, I didn't quite understand superhero films until late on I was so late into it but um my friend Nick Nick Walker who also went to Stella Adler brought me to see um Iron Man because he's super into comic books and and comic films um and that was the first time I understood why people were into it and then I went to watch like all the all the Batmans and you know I I went back and watched everything and I think there's the reason why it's become such a popular genre I think is because yeah it, it, it is it, it's feel good it's it's like the new action films of you know the, we used to have action films before in, in every yeah. other generations right like right. You know, the 90s or whatever had their, and, yeah and I yeah I think you're right you know that it is what did you call? Oh, I just said morality. Morality plays. It. I think in some ways it is. Yeah. And, you know, it, it conceals it in in like a really entertaining form. Yeah. So that maybe you can have both. It's sort of there's entertainment, but there's also an op- opportunity to sort of like tell an allegory about something that having to do with society. Yeah, and I think also, I mean, like I love Guardians of the Galaxy because it's just so funny. Mm, so yeah, sure. You know, there's a lot, there's a, it it becomes comedy as well. Yeah, I've seen them all. So it layers a lot. Mm -hmm. I think there was a period of time where I felt, um, it was interesting because like when I was at NYU, like all my roommates were NYU film people and they were all comic book people. And a lot of them, Mm -hmm. a lot of the people that I knew from the film school work at Marvel or DC now. But I do remember at the time when people, they were like, oh, you know, like, just like, what are you into? Oh, we're into comic books. I just remember thinking like, oh, like, that's weird. <laughs> like, comic book, you mean those things that sit on those like racks in those, in uh, baseball card <laughs> shops and like, or, or like, I, I don't think I'd ever been to a comic book shop in my, nobody put comics in my hands when I was growing up. Um, mm. You know, I was watching a lot of movies growing up and um, I guess playing video games, but not so much. And I was reading, you know, my share 
not that I was a, a huge reader, but I, I, I was reading books and I did like fantasy stuff, I guess. But did you read comic books when you were young? Um, yeah, we grew up with Asterix and Obelix. Beg pardon? And yeah, in French, I have. To oh, 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 yes. Um, I, yeah. I don't know. I don't know how it translates. The Asterix Asteroid and, Obelix. and right. And like Lucky Luke, and well, I mean, I'd read Archie's, and <laughs> I, I think my the comic books that I'd read were mostly in French. Right, that's right. I did too. I read Tintin, and I read. Um, I also read Mouse. Did you ever no. read Mouse? <laughs> um, no. Mouse was a great, but it's more of a graphic novel. That I did read. That was about um, World War Two, the Holocaust. That's a very uh, powerful graphic novel. Um, but yeah, I hear you. I was reading the French stuff too. I took French in high school. I'm not fluent at all. I like to think that I can understand it when it's being spoken to me, but I I can't really speak it that well. Oh, when when you when we get out of quarantine, you should visit Montreal. It's a great place to practice. Yeah, I, I I'm excited to go to Canada. It's uh, it, it, I might move there. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I know people say that as a joke. I have a UK passport. I might just. I think I could use that to maybe move there. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, Commonwealth. You probably could for like a, at least a good year. I maybe. Yeah. Easily. Um, ingratiate myself up there with some people. Um, so uh, now. Let me see here. So let me just ask you, I guess, a couple more questions about Black Lightning, because I'm sure there are the, you're, you have a fan base here that I'm sure would like to know some some uh, some more information about the series or or your takes on some things. So um, <laughs> is it true that your character is currently in a coma? Um, it leaves it off on a cliffhanger. And that is the cliffhanger. OK. And that's because um, Grace Joy gets into a sort of a uh, a fight with Anissa Pierce with Thunder is that correct right yes okay. because um because my character gets uh, mind controlled by a, a new villain this season named Grave Gravedigger okay gotcha yeah so do you, does that did that make you nervous when they when you realize when you read that the, the character was going to be in a coma does that did that make your actor mind go uh-oh is this a way for them to 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 write me off of the show or something like that. I have no idea what that would mean. If um, I read that, I'm just a neurotic. <laughs> it did. And then, you know, I spoke to some of the producers and they teased me a lot. You know, they're like, oh, it's going to be a surprise. Okay. <laughs> or, you know, love doesn't come easy. <laughs> oh, wow. So, you know, while, while they're leaving me on a cliffhanger too, I, you know, I trust that. <laughs> You know, I've I've been with them for a long time, and I love them dearly, and I I just trust that things will work out. <laughs> I think so. I mean, you, people love you on the show, and I I think they would that would be very bizarre if you were suddenly they were like, <laughs> yeah. nah, let's get rid of this character. Um, and you've enjoyed your experience working on the series, I'm sure. Yeah, we had a wrap party at the end of January, and just it was such a great group of people, and I. I've been lucky enough to be with them for the three seasons and yeah, just everyone, the cast and the crew and the producers and the writers. Um, yeah. It's, it's a, every, like it's such a, a nice family environment in some ways. And it's, yeah, it's a real, it's a real treat to be able to work on a production with really great people. 
That's so great to hear. And it's, did you notice, because it did start, it's a CW show, but then of, of course it starts on Netflix, did you, and which is worldwide. So did you notice a change in terms of your visibility once the show started to re-air on streaming services? Yeah, usually when, when it when it airs again, like I get a, a you know, an, an increase in like a, any followers like what happened during this quarantine I was like oh people are watching <laughs> people are watching Black Lightning yeah so that's how I kind of know like oh you know pe- people are people are tuning in when that happens yeah now yeah, is it it do you, are you also finding is it lucrative when it starts to go on to Netflix I'm not really sure I haven't had a series on Netflix yet so I don't really know if that is you know is syndicated in the same way that a show would be syndicated on another network on television well, according to my residuals, I'm I think so, but it's still uh, honestly that's probably an area where I would need to find more clarity in because it's I uh, it's not as clear as when it you know you're working on a network show and yeah uh, it it would it would air on another network in in another country right and you get a residual for that and you're like oh okay so. I, I I think so. Yeah. Okay. I know there's a new contract that is supposed to be from SAG after that is um, almost approved at this point, and I think is going to be presented for a vote. And then one of the things mm. that, that this contract is dealing with is better residuals from the major streaming companies. So mm. ho- hopefully that spells good things for for actors. You were uh, I saw along with uh, that you were. Um, Along with many of us, you you had been out protesting and demonstrating over the last four weeks against uh, police violence and <laughs> systemic racism. Um, a- am I right that you have recently been active in, with an organization called Build Power? Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about Build Power and what the group's mission is? Um, perhaps we could even direct people to donate to their organization or 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 direct them to get involved. Build Power was yeah created by founded by Kendrick Sampson and um, my friend Lacey who was initially she's working at CAA and she was you know helping him develop his you know his his work outside of uh, acting and she this year she joined um, and is uh, the associate director of Build Power now and a few I think it so 2018 it must have been 2018 I did a PSA with them, um, you know, when they just first started out, and their their work is very much oriented t- towards liberating uh, and empowering, and kind of between the intersection between artists and storytellers and grassroots organizations, um, in order to like empower and build communities. And I actually remember he was campaigning for um bernie sanders uh kendrick sanson was yeah he was yeah kendrick and i randomly bumped into him in a shake shack (laughs) the shake shack in in hollywood and you know and i I remember like i didn't know him back then but he was with some friends and like i was eating there by myself and randomly like met these people and started talking so like even before I had officially met him through Build Power, like you know he, his heart is really in 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 the right place, and yeah, you know he's he he went to, you know he went to the border to protest and 
help when you know ice was and still detaining is families yeah detaining yeah detaining children um and so he's very he's always been very active and i think you know in the past couple of months i'm really happy that you know that they're the level of um the work that they've been doing is being recognized by the community at large. The group uh, issued a, a statement on their website that was signed by over 300 black artists in Hollywood demanding that businesses divest from police and anti-black content uh, and in, invest in anti-racist content, invest in their careers and their community. Mm-hmm. Should we tell folks where, because Build Power is B-L-D-P-W-R. Where do we direct people to get involved with them? Do, do For folks who are interested in in um, supporting this organization, is, they, is there a, 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 you know, beyond their website, should we be, should folks be following them on social media? Should, are they accepting donations? Uh, they are accepting donations, and I think you can do that through their website. And I would follow, so Build Power, B-L-D-P-W-R, on Instagram, which they are on Instagram and Twitter and and Facebook, but I would say Instagram is where they're, you know, they're, they're updated events and uh, if they have uh, talks and, uh, you know, online talks, that's where a lot of it is posted. How how is what is your own perspective on uh, what it's like navigating this business as as a person of color? Well, you know, you know, you and I both went to Stella Adler, and yeah, I always assumed that it would take a long time to, you know, build a career in this industry, and and it, I don't know whether it's because I, you know, being a person of color or just because of the nature of the industry, but. I always like to think of what Malcolm Gladwell says, you know, it takes 10 years to mm. to master an art. And it took me, you know, 10 years to be able to call myself a working actor. Um, and yeah. I think in the first seven years of those, <laughs> it, or five years at least, you know, I didn't, I didn't have an agent, agent or manager or opportunities to audition. And maybe it, it, it's easy for me to, to, and I think in the past, 10 years a lot of that was internalized as like you know oh it's it's my fault because hmm. maybe i didn't i'm not working hard enough or you know something is wrong with me and it hmm. yeah and at one point but you know i'm, I'm glad I, i'm starting to work but as it's opening up i'm i've begun to understand also that there is <clears throat> there's definitely um a limited limited uh, there's limited roles to audition for okay and there's there's limited roles to audition for the opportunities are fewer specifically yeah. i think for for asians at this moment yeah you know where are the asian american shows that with like leading characters right 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 and sure. you know yeah. like <laughs> i mean fresh off the boat was the first one in 20 years and right um Crazy Rich Asian was the first blockbuster Asian American film since Joy Luck Club. So yeah, it's more about the quality, and you know, are, are you are you reflecting, you know, that 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 demographic in in a in a valuable way? And I think after the six months of working on 
on these projects, I realized that what was important for me as a creative person was to also be able to explore like a Vietnamese uh, Canadian uh, story. Hmm. Yeah, that's great. So I, thinking yeah, I beyond to... being an actor. Yeah, I was going to, I wanted to ask you about that. So it, it, you know, you, I did read that you have optioned a novel. Is that what you're referring to? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do you want to talk a little bit about the, the, this book that you've optioned? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm really, I'm super excited about it. It's been such a fun process to work on. And so since, since January, I've been taking, I've been taking uh, screenwriting classes uh, and I started, my friend Andy and I started a writing group, which we're on our, we're finishing up uh, our third cycle of it, where we write for 21 days and then we get together on Zoom for a feedback session. Yeah. So I've been writing pretty consistently since January. And um, so this is a book that I optioned in 2018, before everything got busy. And I was attracted to it because there's many elements that I can relate to but it's always been my dream to tell a Vietnamese story set in Montreal and have it be in French <laughs> because I've never seen that done yeah and you speak and French is that right I do yeah so, so this is a novel been a dream to work it, it, in French so that um are you okay if I share the name of the author or the name of the book yeah so this yeah. is a novel by Caroline Vu uh mm-hmm called The Summer in Provincetown about three generations of Vietnamese Canadians. Um, so this is it's so interesting because your this is in in many ways this represents your background. Is that right? Yeah. And I think that's why I was very I was just attracted to this story in particular because I there's many elements elements that I can relate to. And when I met her in Montreal a few years back and she also came to see my play in New York Oh, but cool. she has she's just so honest and vulgar and she's she's <laughs> just the way she is is just straight up you know she doesn't hide secrets so the, the book is basically you know based a lot on her real life story and the honesty in it is shocking for me hmm oh wow that's a, that sounds really exciting um mm-hmm. now this is this is what i would consider like final boss level acting career stuff is like optioning a book and you know writing it adapting it producing it um could you talk maybe a little bit just for our audience about like how do you go about optioning a book because that's something that i don't think a lot of folks sort of at the beginnings of their careers know how to do i i did some research and talked to producer friends who have done it in the past um and i have had been look i have been looking actively for you know, a story t- to write or to tell or to option for, you know, years before that. Um, but when I came across her book, I actually, I was interested in, in a different book. And then my aunt turned me on to her because she was like a friend of a friend, you know, friend of the family. Hmm. So I was lucky in that respect because um, I had a immediate, you know, access to her. To, to, to contacting her um, and when, when I felt like this was the one I, I wanted to work on um, I, I, I emailed her and you know wrote wrote uh, 
the best email I, I could do, you know, to just see yeah. if I could speak to her in person, first of all. Yeah. Um, so, you know, after pilot season, I flew back to Montreal, met her for tea and it went really well. She, and then she actually invited me back to her house for me to see like, you know, her photos and her, her, you know, things that are based on her life, like her, you know, the paintings of her cousin who passed away and, and for the legal, for the legal steps after that, um, I spoke to a lawyer, uh, and, and got help to draft a contract and then got in touch with her publisher. Got it. The editor. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. I think that's that's really cool. Thank you for sharing that. I think it's just, you know, this is one of those things that I think when we do talk about uh when 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 conversations are being had about sort of um maybe uh taking owner ownership of property in ver- whether it, you know, um intellectual property that then you can um have more of a an opportunity to um, have an impact on on storytelling uh, coming out of Hollywood. This is one of the ways I would imagine that you, that you do it. You find um, you find uh, the the material, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, that's wonderful. I'm excited for you for that. Um, Thank you. Now, you also recently starred in Tracy Letts' new play, Linda Vista. So, yeah. First of all, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that is another huge accomplishment. Secondly, um, I, and I have to say this, I am so very sorry I missed it when it was at the Mark Taper. I'm so sorry. Oh, don't Chantal. worry. <laughs> I remember don't being upset. I, 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 you know, I think that my, that I couldn't make it. I think that it, we, we had a three-year-old at the time and I think we had another uh, baby on the way. So, uh, mm, but mm. I was thrilled to watch you take that amazing ride. Um and the play then had a, subs- a subsequent Broadway run at the Helen Hayes Theater. Just amazing. Thank um, you. What was it like being in New York on Broadway? And like, it's like, what is it, September? Like the only, like the best month to be in New York. Was that just mm-hmm. like every morning, like happy to jump out of bed sort of? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, Second Stage and Steppenwolf put us all in a... a corporate housing near the theater so it was a six minute walk to the theater and the rehearsal Amazing. space and just I've never you know I hadn't lived in New York since moving Adler um so it'd been like you know nine years since I I was there yeah and it was shocking after <laughs> like oh all these people this energy it's so different from LA right but I, it's so I quickly adapted and I just love New York so much even even Times Square I was like I love this place I love this city it's just so expensive <laughs> oh it is it's insanely <laughs> expensive yeah but it was a thrill it was a real thrill to be there um, I would yes, I would imagine the so according to the LA Times, the play is about a middle-aged divorcee's attempts at creating a new life for himself. You played Minnie, uh, this character mm-hmm. Wheeler's twenty-six-year-old uh, rockabilly Vietnamese American neighbor who's pregnant mm-hmm. and in an abusive relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a lot to digest in terms of creating mm-hmm. a process for a character. I mean, between Minnie and Grace Choi, I mean, these are characters with a lot going on. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. How do you make that simple? How do you make it doable when you've got these like three, four things you have to keep in mind about a character's, um, you know, sort of just the descriptors? I think I, I think I was lucky in this aspect too because Grace, I've been with her since for the past three seasons. So shooting this past last summer was my third season shooting her. So I kind of I, I understand the dynamics um and they shot me out on a month you know they would bring me out on mondays shoot me out and then fly me back so it was very quick scenes um, are you I'm, are you saying that you were actually doing double duty with the play and the show at the same time oh yeah yeah i was shooting i was shooting on mondays oh and then then i would do the eight shows a week from tuesday to sunday <laughs> yeah um but but and then I was I felt lucky because right as my season wrapped season two wrapped I flew to Chicago to start rehearsing for uh, the taper run in Chicago in uh, November 2018. So I I was completely you know I, I was completely focused on working on Minnie and yeah. uh, Linda Vista. So by the time we uh, we did the performance at the taper, that kind of became the foundation and the and the grounds uh, of the character and the play. And there were some changes, but in terms of the character, it was pretty much developed uh, for the taper. Okay, so you felt like you okay, so you you were able to sort of like get your groundwork done on each character, and then mm-hmm. during these different slots and then it and then it all converges and you're just seven days a week with airplane flights doing a broad Mm -hmm. your first broadway show and doing your third season of black lightning is that yeah yeah that's incredible you can congratulations again on that's an that's an incredible achievement Chantal. yeah i Um, I definitely never saw that in my future but i'm very grateful do you do you get to a point where you're like, I want this to be my career all the time? Or do you feel, I mean, I know you were talking about earlier, like it was nice to sort of around January, like things slowed down for a minute. And of course we all need breaks, but would you prefer your career to be busy like that most of the time? Or, or was that, you know, in retrospect, like how did, how did that all, how did that all feel in retrospect? Just exciting and, happy to be working I think it was definitely exhausting at you know towards the end of it um and it was hard to not be able to see my family especially uh because I wasn't able to go back for any of the holidays I usually I normally would um but I think what what is nice about being an actor is I do also have a lot of breaks in between work like right now where I I can afford time to spare to to be with my family so you know, I think the scheduling is is the harder aspect of it, but because the work it, itself is so fulfilling, it's something I'm I'm willing to. It's a you know it's it's the sacrifice you have to make. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, so, so uh, could you talk a little bit about your experience auditioning for the play? Yeah, um, there was a first iteration of the play at the Steppenwolf Theater that I auditioned for in 2017 um, and I got to the final rounds and callbacks 
and I didn't get the part, but they recast mm. the role uh, for LA and New York. And when I went back for the final round of, rounds of callbacks for the LA run, that was the first time I met Tracy. Uh, and Dexter, who's a director, I met him again, and he's always been a very warm presence. And, you know, he remembered me and I remembered him. But I, I don't know, I, I guess in that, the final rounds of callbacks, they they flew us to Chicago for that one. And I think it was just three of us. But I just, hmm. I, you know, I actually, I had for this for this round, I almost didn't go to audition for the part because I was shooting in Atlanta and I would have, you know, I, I'm like, oh, do I want to fly back to LA for this theater audition that I didn't get once? Like, <laughs> Ape, you know, wow, like, I yeah. really, I wasn't going to go, but then I got wrapped. They wrapped me, you know, a day early. So I was able to fly out Friday and then make the audition on Monday. Ugh. And then I, I flew back with like my Andy, who, you know, who, who's, who's my friend who, who like did a arc on black lightning. And she was reading the size with me. Like that was my first time reading it. And you know, I had two day. I worked on it through the weekend, and then I went back into the to the auditions. But like, I honestly wasn't gonna go. And then I, when I got the second round of callbacks, I decided to do a bigger effort, and I went to um, the studio where I usually train at the Berg Studio, and I, I did my scenes, and I, you know, I did it with the class, and the the class gave me feedback, and I just worked on it hmm. on my feet which did a which really helped yeah to create the environment um so i felt felt very confident by the time i i went to chicago for my audition oh my god that's so great to hear and it's so amazing that it, it like that's how a lot of stories happen with this business where it's like they wrapped you a day early so you had that day to you know like if it had not mm. happened that way then something may not have actually happened mm it's that's what an amazing story um so tracy lets his plays they tend to vary in the sense that he's got great dysfunctional american kitchen sink drama stuff with all of its liberal elite humor and then he's got some truly dirty fucked up shit as well like bug and killer Mm -hmm. joe Mm -hmm. what do you think is his like some of the takeaways you think about him in terms of his comments on america like when he is he deconstructing America into its most basic and base characters and with with regard to the lives of his uh the characters that he writes I mean from what I from what I I I know and I understand of him now you know in some ways all his plays are are very personal you know like it's not that it's him, but it's an aspect of him and it's an aspect of life and of the human condition that he understands. And, and so I think portraying those aspects that can be dark and, you know, dysfunctional or the pain and, and also in a way, finding a way to redeem it in the end and to find, um, you know, to, to find the balance of it and how do you grow, you know, how do you grow from from that place, that mm. way out of the dysfunction, I think is is, is something that I, I see in his work and I connect with. 
Okay, got it. Yeah, and I think that, you know, one of the things I think I had read about this character, Wheeler, is that he's sort of a 50-plus-year-old um, white, straight white dude. Is he supposed, do you think he's supposed to be some in some way like a surrogate for the playwright himself or or... I think what he says about it in interviews a lot and, you know, when he talks about it is that it's a ver- version of him that could, that he, a version of his life that could have been his, that could have been his life if he had made different decisions. Okay. And, you know, I think it's a culmination also of people he knows in his life. Of, yeah. Um, I think it's not just him. I mean, I, I see that that man and you know i i, I can recognize him in, in like actually women that i know too you know okay yeah he's yeah i think he has a monologue at some point the character wheeler talking a little bit about like how old he is and that he's basically he's not going to change even though he knows that he's kind of an ugly and like mm. unlikable person mm. do you think that that's uh do you think it's how rare is it do you think for somebody over the age of i guess 50 is that a thing where it's like they or I guess I should say like do you believe that people can change after a certain age or do you think that part of the comment here was that it just takes an incredible amount of will um, to for somebody who has is so ingrained in a, in a sort of a way of thinking about life and about people in terms of their empathy and things like that for, for, for mm. people to change. What do you think? Well, I think it's it comes down to self-awareness. And I, I think anyone can develop a sense of self, self-awareness and, and, and like deeper understanding into their own minds at, at any age, really. Like, you know, and for some people it comes earlier and some people it comes later. And sometimes mm. it takes a tragedy and, mm. and pain and suffering for, 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 a deeper sense of self-awareness. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Now we should note at this point also that there was recently, uh, a collective formed of black indigenous and people of color theater makers who crafted a strong testimonial letter entitled dear white American theater, which was also signed by over 300 BIPOC artists. This went around mm. on social media to address the scope and pervasiveness of anti-blackness and racism in the American theater. Um, you were performing in Linda Vista with members of, as you said, the Steppenwolf Theater Company, perhaps one of the most famous theater companies in America. Do, do you think that Steppenwolf has a little, some work to do on this front? I mean, I think, I think all theater companies do. And, you know, when I look at Steppenwolf, I'm like, do they have an Asian member? <laughs> do they have, do they have any? Yeah. You know, I, I don't know. And how don't many, so. how many, how many black actors or, or performers or writers do they have? Yeah. And, you know, it's something I'm very conscious of and something I look, you know, look around. But the other aspect is also when I'm perf- out into the crowd and, you know, I, <laughs> You know, I see who the the regular subscribers are, and you know, it's it's a lot of older white folks, and right. that's sort of the landscape of theater right now, and it, that's something I I feel is important to to like hopefully change as well to make theater more accessible for for communities at large because it's it's expensive. 
It is very expensive. And I had this conversation also with this uh, another actor, Clark Peters, that I had mentioned earlier. He because he's he's a um, multiple Olivier Award winner and Tony nominee. Um, and we were talking a little bit about something you were talking about accessibility in terms of the audience makeup. Who who are the people going out to see the theater and. You know, we wondered, we talked a little bit about like maybe moving these theaters outside of the center of a of a major American city and put it sort of, you know, almost the way that they do with sports stadiums, like put them outside of the the most expensive real estate um, so that maybe they can bring ticket prices down because ticket prices seem to be the one of the one of the barriers that are in, in terms of this conversation about inclusivity it's also a conversation about representation in terms of board members and playwrights and actors um what do you think about that do you think that's a possible idea as to with time square like when this quarantine is over broadway's going to be dar- dark into 2021 should they go back to those Broadway houses or should they, should we be starting over somewhere else? I mean, I, th- I think that's a hard thing for me to comment on because I think the logistic of, you know, rental prices and all of that is a bit out of my scope. Um, but definitely it sounds like it could be a solution for how to create more community engagement. Yeah. Um, and I think also on the level of, uh, the theater companies and the kind of outreach they do and you know what kind of opportunities that they could create for different communities yeah um it was a th- was it a three-hour play at the the when it was at the taper the linda vista i think it ended i, th- I think it ended up being two two hours and like 46 minutes man did you, um, and you're doing eight shows a week. How many months mm-hmm. did the show run when it was, um, I guess, on Broadway? I think about three months. So do, what do you, like, what is your, what do you do to keep your endurance up? Do you have daily routines or rituals? <laughs> uh, I sleep. <laughs> okay. So anytime um, you're not in the theater, you're... You're you're not I, going I, I out think, and enjoying like restaurants in New York City. You're like back at the room. I I think because of not having that Monday off, it was it was the the weeks where I had a Monday off were were very exciting for me. And I would spend that day, you know, going, you know, seeing visiting friends. Yeah, definitely seeing friends or family in New York, and and going to eat. But I think the days where I didn't have that Monday off, um, I definitely just try and rest and and um just keep keep conserve my energy yeah did did you ever panic that you do you ever like wake up in the middle of the night and go like oh shit like i gotta be on broadway tonight i'm sure i did (laughs) i think i'm sure i have i think i have a really great support system of friends and family around me that I can outreach to and, and call when I when I start to freak out. But also the cast are, you know, everyone's super supportive. And I think there's a sense where you can be completely exhausted and have no energy, but the minute you step onto the stage, something happens. Mm. Uh, you, you know, you just, you get carried by the scene or, you, you know, you, you get carried by the energy of the audience, which is, I think, one, one thing I really learned and remembered about 
what makes you're in a play so amazing is you get you get the immediate energy from your partner and from the audience yeah i think so. yeah totally the you you run on adrenaline <laughs> you know every play the, the nerves kick in a little bit yeah or or a lot and it's like and it's you like you have to energized. be it's like you're it's it's like you're great because you have to be great because all of a sudden it's like there's not a it's that adrenaline kicking in that just says like you have to be awesome right now and i one big lesson through that was just taking it one day at a time or one hour at a time or one moment or one minute at a time whatever needed just focusing on the next step and mm. not thinking too far ahead yeah that's great advice um well, Chantal, you are a wonderful person for coming on and doing my show, particularly since you're so busy and you're just now getting a little family time. Thank you so much for doing it. It's it's so nice to catch up with you, and I'm so happy to see everything you're doing. I wish you continued success mm. in addition to safety mm. and good health. Thank you so much for inviting me. I really, I really had a good time. Oh, I great. Really okay, it. cool. Um, all right. I will. Hopefully, we'll talk soon. Yeah, definitely. I look forward to it. Well, there you have it. My interview with Chantal Tui. A big thank you again to Chantal for doing it. I hope you all enjoyed it. Before we move on to our second interview today, I'm going to take another opportunity to ask you all to please subscribe to this podcast wherever you're getting your podcast from today. Melissa Fumero's episode is next week for all you Brooklyn Nine-Nine fans. Plus, we've got more incredible interviews coming up with folks like Ryder Doyle, Sarah Paxton, Christine Woods, Tembi Locke, Vinnie Chibber, and Elna Baker. If you like what you hear so far, please give us those five-star ratings, leave us a nice comment. We so appreciate all of your ratings, reviews, and kind words, and we want to keep bringing you these great episodes. Next up is Jordan Barbour. Jordan talks about his recent Broadway debut in The Inheritance Play and the sudden closure of the show due to COVID. He also talks about working with legendary theater icon Peter Brook, his joint study program at Juilliard and Columbia University, and we chat about our summer doing theater together at the renowned Williamstown Theater Festival. He is a brilliant and hugely talented guy. Here now is me talking with my friend, Jordan. First of all, <laughs> congratulations on making your Broadway debut with The Inheritance. Thank you very much. Took me fucking forever. Am I allowed to curse? You are. Okay, cool. Thank you. <laughs> I welcome it. Um, so according <laughs> to the interwebs, the play examines love between uh, gay men in contemporary New York, a generation after the AIDS epidemic, and asks what the current generation owes its forebearers. It's been called the most important American play of this century. And I guess mm. the play was sadly prophetic as well because isn't it true that the production was ultimately shut down by the outbreak of a new pandemic it was uh what's strange is that it was it was actually scheduled to end the weekend after broadway got shut down anyway so we were kind of already in like ramping down mode and we were kind of already starting to say our goodbyes but um then the show like all of broadway closed after all the shows on i believe it was wednesday march 11th and as a result, we ended up performing our last show that evening, uh, which was weird and unexpected. But yeah, it is quite quite prophetic that another 
epidemic or pandemic in this case took us down. Can you talk a little bit about that night, that final performance? Yeah. Um, I mean, it was a bit surreal because so the show, The Inheritance, is two parts. They're two three and a half hour plays. So uh, we on Wednesdays, Saturdays and Sundays, we got to do the whole thing on Thursdays and Fridays. We would just do part one. So we always really like doing the double days because the show the show absolutely works just doing part one or just doing part two, but it's clearly it's 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 meant to be performed as an entire day event. Um, that day I was in a particularly bad mood about, I can't even remember what it was, but somebody or something was pissing me off. So I was in like kind of a crappy mood and it was kind of a surreal feeling because the other thing that happened was because we ended up getting informed that we were closing kind of abruptly, uh, Lincoln Center, mm. you know how Lincoln Center does those, uh, where they, the Lincoln Center Performing Arts Library, uh, records Broadway shows. They do. Right. Uh, they hadn't come to see us yet. So we had just been informed that they were going to come on Wednesday. So the crazy thing is that Lincoln Center actually ended up recording what ended up being our final performance of doing the inheritance ever. So it was kind of a cool experience because we were, you know, as, as much of a shitty mood as I was in for whatever, I can't even remember what it was. But it was a cool experience because we knew that we were uh, in our final week. We knew that this was only uh, one. This was like one of our final double show days. There were only going to be two more and they were going to be that weekend. And I was already assuming that the weekend was going to be deeply emotional and very difficult. And, you know, a lot of saying goodbyes and getting rid of your stuff in the dressing room and all that stuff. So Wednesday was really the last time we were going to get to do the double show day without all this pressure to like clear out your dressing rooms and all this stuff. So it was kind of the last day we were going to have like a sort of relaxed uh, time doing the double show day. Uh, and then you had this added thing of Lincoln center theater was, or Lincoln, uh, Lincoln center performing arts library was there to record it. So it's weird because at at the time, none of us knew it was our last show. So we weren't really doing those last show things that you do where you're like, Oh, I got to watch this scene because it's going to be the last time we do it. Or, Oh, I got to make sure I say goodbye to this person. You know, we weren't doing any of that. So it was a weirdly normal show. Like there was just sort of this air of like, okay, we're in our final days and we got to do this. And then all of a sudden that night I was hanging out at a bar that was across the street. The first clue that I had that something big was happening was we were at that bar and they had just announced that the NBA was uh, going to oh, be yeah. suspended for the rest of the year. Right. That was the first major event. Yeah. Yeah. And that was the moment where we because I was hanging out with some friends and we were sort of like, are they going to close Broadway? I don't think they're going to close us. And we were sort of like, well, they're closing down the NBA. I mean, if they're closing down a money making institution like the NBA, uh, chances are they're going to probably close us down yeah. too. But we were sort of like still riding on this mindset of like, oh, people are overreacting about this. We're not, it's not nearly as big a deal as people think it is. And then literally the next day, we got a call from our uh, company manager letting us know that the show performed its sh- last show the night before. And we had to come and clean out our dressing rooms that night. So we all had to come. So that's how it. Ha- so so basically, you they told you after the fact, like that was it. That was your last show. Yep. We had you had already done it. We had no oh, idea. Wow. 
Yeah. So it was just it was just kind of like a regular show. I was in a bad mood about some crap, which I would not have been had I known it was our last show. Um, wow. Or at least I might have been, but I would have tried to get over it. But yeah, <laughs> we uh, we found out after the fact. And then we had to do like very rushed goodbyes because we basically had from like five o'clock to eight o'clock to come get our stuff. Everyone's on different schedules. Everyone's on different. Everyone's getting different like cars together and stuff. So I got to say goodbye to a couple of my castmates. Um, then, because we didn't really realize the severity of like congregating in large groups, there was still like an event at a bar that Friday mm. uh, where we, because we were planning on doing our sort of like goodbye party that Sunday. Um, and our director said, well, let's just do it this Friday since we're getting closed anyway. And it was really bittersweet because not everyone was there because people were starting to really get it that this was a big deal and we probably shouldn't be congregating. I was not one of those people. But um, yeah, it was a very rushed and very strange way to close out my Broadway debut. But it also, I mean, anyone who knows me, it feels like a very appropriate way for Jordan Barbour to have to end something because it's, it's just full of drama and full of craziness. And um, yeah. yeah. That's really funny that's that you life. say that. I think about drama a lot like in my own life. Um, I really purport to not attract it. When, because yeah i mean for me anyway the whole idea is that <laughs> you do it up there <laughs> yeah yeah well we know each other we know each other originally from the williamstown theater festival that's where we met and that was yes we do 12 years ago now 2008 yeah so jesus and I think, like oh my god summer of 12 years ago oh my I know. god it's going quick <laughs> I think that like we that group of us like we we bonded pretty quickly. Um, you know, I think that it felt very much like we were all sort of cut from a similar cloth in terms of what you and I are just talking about. Where maybe there maybe there's a level of personal confidence that I think each of us had. There's certainly I don't think there was anybody in that group of folks that was that I would call shy. Would you? Um. No. I mean, you definitely have like quieter people. Like there's not really anyone in that group. I mean, everyone is very courteous. Everyone is very kind. But I feel like, and you know, one of the things, one of the reasons why, am I allowed to say people's names? Yeah, I suppose so. Like, I mean, so I, we're, I try okay. not to say, I try to steer away from being shitty unless it's about somebody who is like so powerful and they have it coming. But great. You know. Yeah, I'm I'm not going to talk. There, nothing I'm about to say is shitty. Unless, yeah. You know, we might get to something later in the conversation. Sure. But, you know, <laughs> I distinctly remember, you know, our first week we had Maya Dralis, the director. Oh, yeah. Uh, have to do those like exercises and stuff with us. And I think so much about the dynamic of that group, because honestly, still to this day, I, I remember that group as being particularly special. And. Um, that summer, those 10 weeks as being revelatory in, in, in how I was able to work with an ensemble and the type of work we were, we brought at each other. You know, we didn't always get along. We certainly bickered, but like there was so much implicit trust and love there mm. that I think we ended up doing really lovely work. And I, I, I yeah. credit Mayadralis a lot with that. And I too, yeah. yeah, I think, I, I think it was this sort of like perfect storm of things where you had a director come in and really engage us and you had 10 actors or however many we were who were all just appropriately open at the right time in our lives to be there doing that type of work. And so yeah. it was one of these weird 
situations where we just had this perfect sort of alchemy and the the 10 or 12 of us, however many it was, just sort of fell into a rhythm that was really, I can't think of anyone that I had a problem with in that yeah. group. And that is very rare for me. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I was I was at Lincoln Center doing a director's lab a few years ago. And one of the people there, I won't say who it was just because, you know, I don't, I'm not mm. going to say who it was, but it wasn't that horrible what they said. They, they I don't some people might th not think it's horrible at all. But this person who's one of the people in charge there said, like, everybody is too nice today. And, you know, I think mm. that, like, there's nothing wrong with being nice at all. We could use more niceness, particularly when we think about the context of the way people treat each other at work. Um, in the theater world, though, there had been quite a history going back to, I would imagine, the Joe Papp days over at the public where people were probably pretty fucking terrible to each other. Mm -hmm. um, you hear stories about um, certain productions. I think like the stories about like that particular production of Hurley Burley in Chicago where everybody was like doing coke the whole time. Like, I'm sure that was fucking <laughs> toxic as hell. But I yeah. did appreciate a little bit what this person was trying to say. I think what they I think what would be refreshing would be like that you could get into it with the person and then be better friends for it. So long as it's not mm -hmm. something that you're saying is not, you know, deeply um, fucked up because it's like, you know, I would rather have a, a, a passionate conversation with somebody that is a real uh, debate of ideas with regard to art mm -hmm. um, than have groupthink. Would you agree? I absolutely agree. And, you know, to go back to what you were saying about, like, people are too, uh, this person who said people are too nice, a part of me agrees. And what I'll say is this. I I don't believe in nice. I actually kind of hate nice. I, I wish people would exercise kindness more. And I, okay. I, I, it's, you know, I realize that these are kind of my own subtle distinctions, maybe my own definitions. I think kindness comes from a place of like deep love and honesty. And so, and truth, you can say something that is potentially not nice, but that is very kind to someone because it comes from a place of love and concern and honesty. And I hate niceness because I think niceness is fake. I'd rather someone be quote unquote mean to me, but it's coming from a genuine place than smile in my face and be nice and then be a fucking piece of shit behind my back. And right. I, exactly. so to, to in that regard, I agree with the person who said this because I actually do think that there's a lot of bullshit in the arts right now, especially like the American theater. There's, there's so many, I mean, what I feel like what we're seeing kind of happening online with regard to the, um, we see you movement and the uh -huh. sort of yeah. the things that are happening with regard to like black lives matter and BIPOC theater makers who are coming out of the woodworks and saying, I'm tired of getting treated this way, blah, blah, blah. Yes. is because yeah. we've had decades of niceness. We've had years and years of niceness right. where these like artistic directors or whomever will like say things to us and ask things of us or expect things of us. And it's not coming from a place of kindness. It's coming from a place of selfishness, but it's mask. It's being masqueraded by this veneer of niceness right. and it's bullshit. And I think that it's exactly also what you were what you were talking about about why we get along so well, which is I think that veneer of bullshit is something that you and I both lack. Hmm. And yeah, I I would say maybe if people don't understand us, it's because we're not necessarily like nice people. That doesn't mean we're mean, but I think that underneath it all is kindness and 
what that gets at is people being honest with each other. I mean, I think I think when we were becoming friends, there's probably a couple things that we like maybe butted heads on or didn't see eye to eye on. But like, I think underneath it, what the connective tissue for both of us was the fact that like, I actually could see in you that there was like a genuinely kind person in there. Mm. And I, I trust, I hope that you saw that in me. Um, Oh, absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, I, yeah. I, I think that I think that's the reckoning that's sort of happening in the arts right now is that people are just tired of seeing, you know, I'll, I'll speak for myself. I'm tired of seeing white people be nice. I just and yeah. all people. It's not just white people. It's just white people are who is who's getting called out right now. But like, I'm tired of seeing people nice. People be nice. We're in the arts. We're supposed to hold up a mirror to society or whatever the fucking saying is. Let's let's fucking get real. And mm. we can care for each other. We can take care of each other. But let's yeah. be real. And I, yeah. you know, I th also think that's what that group in 2008 at Williamstown Theater Festival was. That's that's one of the things why we that's one of the reasons why we bonded so beautifully together. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it reminds me of that line also from Into the Woods, right? The song, the yes. witch sings, right? You're not good. Yes. You're just nice. You're just nice. Yeah. Yes. Yes, absolutely. You have followed what some might consider sort of a classic old school theater actor career in the sense that you travel across the country working in regional houses, doing theater mm -hmm. all the way from Pasadena to Alabama to Oregon to Anchorage, right? To Juneau. To Alaska. Juneau, Juneau, Alaska. So, yeah. so, um, so I'm glad to hear that you say that that summer was important to you. It was, it was very important to me too. Um, mm -hmm. But I did want to ask you about this. So, what was it about the so-called journeyman actor career that was that was interesting to you? <laughs> um, well, you know, Broadway wasn't calling, so I kind of had to go where the work <laughs> okay. was. OK. Um, now, why wasn't why wasn't Broadway? Why? You know, because now you did your you did a, a very impressive joint B.A. program at both Juilliard as a singing major, as I recall. And then you were also mm. enrolled at, at Columbia University. Am I right? Yes. Yes. Let me let me clarify it. So yeah. the program is, uh, oh, God, it's so fucking complicated. Basically, when I applied, I you have to apply to both schools separately. I applied for uh, vocal performance at Juilliard, and I applied for liberal arts at Columbia. You get into one school, and you do your primary work there while you're also do so for me, I did uh, my primary work at Columbia while I was studying voice with a professor named David Clatworthy at Juilliard. The idea was to do that for three years while I was basically completing the coursework that you're supposed to complete in four years at Columbia. I was trying to complete in three years while also studying Juilliard, while also having trying to have a life and trying to experience the college experience. Oh my By God. the time I got to my sophomore year, I was completely fucking burned out and I was miserable yeah. and I wasn't enjoying college. I wasn't having a good time. So I basically decided, you know what? I'm just going to do my vocal performance studying at Juilliard. Just focus on getting my degree from Columbia. Um, because the other thing is basically what you do at the end of those three years is you then apply to the grad school at Juilliard move over to Juilliard, do that for another three years and finish out your Columbia time so that at the end of six years, you have a BA from Columbia and a an MS, I think, from Juilliard. And I realized by the, by the beginning of my sophomore year that that wasn't going to happen. And it, it really solidified for me at the end of this, my sophomore year when I was like miserable and burned out. Um, so I completed a four-year program 
with a degree from Columbia where I get to say that I studied at the Juilliard School, but I do not have any sort of degree from Juilliard. Interesting. So many of the doors, the the like auditions for Broadway shows are open exclusively, almost exclusively, it feels like, to anyone who did a grad program at either Yale, mm-hmm. NYU grad, mm-hmm. not undergrad, uh, Juilliard mm-hmm. f- Theater, um, or mm-hmm. and where else? UCSD maybe ACT and UCSD. Yeah, yeah. Am maybe, I right about that, or ACT, is that not fair? Maybe like DePaul. Okay. Yeah. Boston University has got a lot of kids who are you know killing it. Carnegie Mellon. Uh, well, I mean, those are both undergrad programs, but uh, yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely the grad school mafia, and uh, it was weird because so I. I'm studying classical voice. I'm studying opera. And then I decide that's not really the route I want to go. And basically I'm just pursuing a career in theater. Everyone sees on my resume that I have Juilliard. So they instantly assume that I was a drama major at Juilliard. And so I got into rooms. I had people looking at me because they saw the name Juilliard. I had to explain what, you know, that Juilliard with an asterisk was on my resume. And I I don't know if that's why, but like, I never really felt welcome into the grad school mafia because I wasn't really a part of it, which is, which is also why I did Williamstown, you know, Williamstown is kind of in for the non-equity companies, at least Williamstown is a little bit of like summer camp for grad school kids and a few other kids that get to go in. So for me, that was, short of going to grad school, which I didn't have any interest in at the time and then later didn't got didn't get into. Uh, I was sort of trying to use Williamstown as my way in. That didn't really pan out either. So I sort of just had to hit the I just sort of had to pound the pavement like anyone else who didn't have a grad degree. And, you know, the unfortunate and maybe fortunate thing about that is that Broadway and New York did not want me. And I had to either use that as proof that I was a shitty actor and should probably quit this or say, fuck it, there's a bigger world of theater out there. And I decided to do the latter. And as a result, you know, I, yeah, so I got to work at a lot of different theaters around the country and around the world. You know, I got to tour um with, yeah. some, with peter brook uh, well, I was around gonna, europe and I asia i wanted to ask you about that yeah because i you and i we grabbed a coffee together after your production of peter brooks's or uh, the suit um mm-hmm. which came to la um and that's it, great yeah, yes yes you toured north america europe asia and australia with that show my god yeah, yeah. it was a phenomenal show well, with that show actually I went to Australia with another play called The Shipment. That was by Young Jean Lee. And uh, that show toured around Europe. And I went to the Sydney Opera House with that show. Oh, got the it. Suit, okay. The suit was when I had to move to Europe for basically four months. And we traveled around Europe and Asia for those four months. And then we came and toured stateside. And we toured around the States for four months. And one of those stops was L.A. And that's when we saw each other. Can you talk a little bit about who Peter Brook is for folks who don't know? And then it's my understanding that you had a I did read that you had a a really tricky or strenuous audition for that show. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, So basically, Peter Brook is 
one of the sort of modern legends of the American, well, not the American theater, but of world theater. And he made a name for himself in a big way with productions like Marat Saad. Is that right? Yeah. Marat oh, yeah. Saad right. and Mahabharata. Um, and the, I would say the sort of latter, he, he, he was really well known for reinterpreting Shakespeare classics. So he had a really famous production of Midsummer Night's Dream that used sort of acrobatics. Uh, he took texts that were considered to be like epic or considered to be like unproducible, unproducible for the theater and he produced them. And as a result, he ended up developing his own sort of style of theater making. He developed his own sort of style of acting. He wrote a lot of really important uh, literature on theater, probably the most notable of which is called The Empty Space, right. which is all about how theater can basically be performed anywhere. Theater is not dependent upon this box that has seats in it. Theater is a state of mind, almost. Mm. Um, so he ended up becoming sort of a I don't want to say a cult leader, but he ended up being sort of like he ended up having his own sort of strain of theater making and theater fellowship that developed a big following. And that uh, while not necessarily like I don't know that I would call him like a mainstream theater success, but like whatever that means, he is like a world renowned theater artist that mm -hmm. is, you know, he can pretty much take any show he wants to maybe any city in the world and get it produced, which is incredible. Um, yeah. My audition process for that show was intense. So uh, basically I was at the Alabama Shakespeare Festival doing, um, uh, I was doing their rep season in, God, 2013, I think. And while I was there, I got, so a friend of mine that I had just done a workshop of this weird Hamlet thing that she was doing. Um, she actually trained at Lecoq, uh, the Lecoq nice. school in Paris. And one of the adjunct or assistant professors there was this woman named Marie-Hélène Etienne, who is Peter Brook's co-director. Okay. So when they were looking for an actor to take over this role in this play called The Suit, which only has three actors in it, they didn't want to do like a big casting call all over the world. So they, at, they did a lot of like internal, like who do you know kind of things. It ended up just being one of those like serendipitous things where my friend that I had just worked with ended up passing my name off to this professor that she had worked with at Lecoq who ended up passing my name to Marilene Sien. She asked me to submit some video auditions. She didn't like the first two, um, <laughs> made me do it again. <laughs> Uh, That's incredible that like you could hear like, nah, they didn't like that without the next thing being they're going to pass. I mean, that's such the right part of the culture, I think, in Hollywood is this idea, like the smallest thing that may not be the right whatever. It's like mm, they're passing. That's it. They won't ever consider right. you again for this. Yeah. And, you know, the 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 different and interesting and cool thing about working with that company was because they were very difficult and i i loved my time i love i'm so happy that i got to do that tour but i'd be lying if i said that tour wasn't incredibly difficult and a lot of it has to do with like the big personality that was peter was fucking brilliant and i love working with peter um he was tough too but 
what I realized after working with them is they're tough on you because once they see that you're an artist that they like, they are going to go for it. There, it, it's not that same mentality like in New in America. I can only really speak to the New York theater scene, but like that sort of. And again, this kind of goes back to like the nice versus kind thing, right? Where you're dealing with all these theater artists and producers who will smile in your face and just say we don't want you without like necessarily saying like why without necessarily you know and i I realize that the the way the industry is set up it's not really set up to do that um but for an actor it can be horribly demoralizing and you you go to these auditions over and over and over and nobody's giving you feedback and you're being smiled at you're being told that you're a good actor but then nobody's fucking casting you yeah um and what was weirdly refreshing with Peter and Marianne was that they didn't like my auditions, but clearly they saw something in me that they wanted to work with and wanted to weed out, which is why they asked me to keep submitting stuff over and over. Finally, they got a version of the song and the scene and the monologue that they wanted me to do that they liked. And I got flown out to Paris. It was it it worked out well because I was seeing a guy who actually lived in Barcelona at the time. My oh life my was really weird in the early 2010s. Yeah. My life was super weird in the early 2010s, but, um, I was seeing a guy in Barcelona and after my, uh, contract at, or at Alabama was up, I was going to visit him anyway. They would have flown me from New York, but it ended up working out great for them. Cause they could just fly me from Barcelona to Paris. Oh, wow. Um, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So I flew to Paris went in and I'm thinking it's going to be not a casting call, but I'm thinking it's going to be like other guys there, you know, dude, it was just me and one other dude. And he was auditioning for the other role that they were recasting. So it was basically, it was one of those things where it's like, if you fuck this up, it's completely on you because like, there's no one else that they're seeing right now for this role. It's just me. So, um, it was surreal because like I was saying, the way they work is very intense and I'm coming from like my little American theater, you know, everyone's kind to each other, everyone's nice to each other and blah, blah, blah. And I went in there and I started doing this monologue and I started doing this and that. And they, they would just stop you immediately and say, Nope, start again. Nope. Start again. Nope. Huh. Start. And this is literally like the first time I'd ever met these people. I'd ever worked with them and I'm walking in little old nothing. And here's fucking Peter Brook. Yeah. Um, so I was terrified, terrified, terrified the whole time. It was like an hour long audition where basically me, I, I would go up and do my monologue and the song that they wanted me to sing, which was strange fruit, by the way, not an easy song to have to sing for an audition. Right. Um, and then the other guy would do his stuff and the same, they would do the same thing to him. And then the Peter and Marilyn basically asked us to leave and they wanted to talk to the producers And then the producers ended up taking me and this other actor to lunch. And the whole time, this was like an hour or two hours after the audition, the whole time me and this other actor, Ivano is his name, he ended up playing the role as well. We're we're sitting there looking at each other like, what the fuck is going (laughs) on? Like, are they taking us out to lunch to be kind? Are they? So we're out to lunch with the producers and the team not Peter and Mary Lynn, but the, the producers of this theater. And they're talking all in French, which I don't speak. And they're not really talking to the two of us until finally, I can't remember which one of us asked it, but we were like, so what's going on? And then finally the producer was like, oh, you guys have the job. 
we're just oh my god we're taking out to lunch right now so uh we ended up getting the job and then i left for a month and then came back to paris and lived in paris for a little bit while we rehearsed and then would go on tour someplace and then every time we were done a stint in a city or somewhere they gave me the option of like either staying in Paris or going back to New York, but we would only have like a few days off at a time. So it didn't make any fucking sense to go back to New York. So I would just like stay in Paris or see if they could fly me to London where I had friends or see if they would fly me to any other city. Um, and it was, I mean, it was, it was an incredibly difficult and incredibly amazing year in my life. It's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Now, getting back to the inheritance, which uh, folks will want to hear more about. I, so, so now you were considered a standout for your performance as Tristan, a brilliant what? Get doctor. Out of here. Beg up. pardon? What are you talking about? What are you <laughs> talking about? Get out listen, of here. listen. I'm not trying to blow <laughs> any smoke. This is I'm re- I read I read because I'm so you know uh, sadly was not able to see it. Um, did oh. it come to L.A.? No, it's actually, no. I don't know what the deal is. It's supposed to go to Geffen in, it was supposed to go to Geffen in December. Uh, I don't know if no one ever talked to us about like, if it was going to be like that production or that, that cast or no one said anything to us, but it was supposed to go to LA and I think maybe one or two other cities over the course of this year. I assume it's still going to, I just don't know when. All right. Well then for in that case, let me, let me give you your flowers. So here, so you're, (laughs) you're playing Tristan, who is a brilliant doctor living with HIV, who is impassioned by the Trump administration. In fact, you were nominated for best featured actor in a play on Broadway as part of the inaugural Antonio awards for black theater artists. So congratulations again. That's a wonderful honor. Thank you. Thanks very much. You said in your own words, you said Tristan's arc is an emotional allegory for the play itself. People desperately clinging to the silver lining on an ever darkening cloud, Um, which is an amazing quote. Um, Thank you. I feel like I sound like a pretentious asshole, but thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, I wanted to ask you, have you had any moments that you can recall during the Trump years where you found a silver lining? Do you think that there's any or do you think there's light peeking through this ever darkening cloud that we've been living through? Oh, man, Um, that is a really good question. I mean, I feel like the one thing that's underlying any any good theater artist, at least, is I think you have to have a sense of hope in order to do it. And, And maybe that's a little kumbaya and bullshit. But like in order to play these characters in order, many of whom, some of whom are horrible people, some of whom are, all of whom are conflicted in one way or another, blah, blah, blah. I do think that you have to have some sense that like things will get better or that there is a sense of hope out there. And for, and, and I, I actually don't take this lightly. I think as theater artists, people are actually coming to see our play for that very reason. So I think if we're bereft of hope, there's no way that the audience is going to take anything from what Mm. we're saying and doing. And so, you know, it's tough for me because I I tend to think of myself as a a pretty cynical person. I certainly do not have the level of optimism and get to itness that Tristan has. I think Tristan at the end of the day really sees the good in people and really sees the good in the world. Mm. And for him, the, the Trump years were kind of the exception to the rule. I think for me, it's a little bit of the opposite. You know, like I, I do think that there are these amazing little glimmers of hope that we latch onto, you know, 
you know, it's, it's so unfortunate that it came out of the result as a result of, you know, George Floyd being the latest person to die over many, many years, centuries of, uh, black oppression. Yeah. But, but this weird glimmer of hope that's happening is that like, there are so many people getting involved in the conversation now who weren't before. And yeah, a lot of those people are white people. And a lot of, I feel like it, this moment that's happening, unlike every other time there's been a shooting or anything, any other time black people have been speaking up and saying, please stand with us. This time there, there has been kind of a concerted effort I've seen among like white allies and white friends to say like, you know what? Black people can't do this for us anymore. Mm-hmm. We actually have to, pick this up and take this so as far as like seeing glimmers of hope in the trump years it's things like that it's it's moments like that which sadly have been few and far between but there are you know there there are those glimmers there are those things where you see like okay humanity is not a completely lost cause and there now you juxtapose that with the fact that people are considering it uh, defying their American constitutional rights to be asked to wear a fucking mask. And that kind of kills any uh, sense of hope that you have. But yeah. at the end of the day, you are reminded that there are there are good things and good people out there. And it's that. And I, I, in a lot of ways, I credit playing Tristan with keeping me balanced and keeping me buoyed because the, that character is was telling Jordan, hey, you know how you usually get like pissed or sad about this shit? Well, this character is maybe pissed, but he's not going to get sad about it. He's going to be that like shining light. He's going to be that beacon that tries to help bring other people out of the darkness. And, mm. you know, he's a he's a black, gay, HIV positive physician. The number of hurdles that this man must have gone through in his life uh, uh, is probably uh, immeasurable or uncountable unqualifiable unquantifiable and you know seeing that his disposition and his outlook on life is still one of like positivity and is still one of you know he at the end of the day he goes to work treating patients and living with this disease that he will not let destroy him and living under this administration that he will not let destroy him and there's there's a lot that i admire about tristan there's a lot i wish i could uh adopt as far as his uh, qualities go because he's able to see i mean that 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 quote that i gave is exactly how i feel about him he he is this weird ray of light uh, he is this weird uh guy that's lat that's holding on to this silver lining of this cloud that is just getting darker and darker and darker by the day yeah. um that's one of the beautiful thing one of the beautiful things that matthew did is you know create create this world that is getting smaller and darker and sadder, but that there is this underlying core of kindness and love and hope that keeps these characters afloat. Yeah. Now you were back in New York in time to experience the worst of the coronavirus um, in the world, maybe. I, uh, so I was in New York at the start of it. Did you get out? I did get out. My friend, uh, my friend and roommate, Randy, uh, has, a home that he uh, recently purchased upstate in New York ended up being like kind of perfect timing. Um, And it's a two bedroom. He was like, I'm going to basically be hiding out there. You can come. And I I basically went with my boyfriend and we kind of 
hit up there for like nine or ten weeks. So we uh, we missed the worst of it. Um, in some ways, I, I feel like I have a little bit of like survivor's remorse because of that. But like I or survivor's guilt, I guess. But I'm ultimately really happy that I was able to get out of the city during that time because it was it was I mean, we're still in it, but it was we are dark and it was sad. And, yeah. you know, I, I just remember hearing from people that you didn't hear anything outside except for sirens for like three weeks straight or something. You know, it was just very dark time. Uh, to be I still Yorker. remember and people sharing the videos of everybody uh, applauding the essential workers, the healthcare workers mm -hmm. from from people holding a phone outside like a, a, a skyscraper residence. And you, mm -hmm. you could hear the entire city applauding. Mm -hmm. um, did you how about the process of like applying for unemployment benefits during that time? Like, did you have to do that? And how long did it take before you could got a check? Girl. What a fucking nightmare. <laughs> what a fucking nightmare. This is what I, I, I uh, applied for unemployment. The So I started the online process the weekend that the inheritance closed. Because I, I was like, okay, we're, you know, at the time they were saying theater was going to come back in May or June or something. Mm -hmm. And I was like, yeah. okay, probably not. And then eventually that became like September and I was like, you know what, let me, let me get on this right now. So I was actually one of the early people who, uh, was like on my shit and tried, I'm sorry, just snapped. That's probably gonna, whatever, uh, was like on my shit and tried to, uh, uh, get things going. I was started the process online. There was something, I guess that I didn't fill out correctly Ugh. and they said that I needed to call uh, and I, I went online and I kept trying to finish it online and they said, I have to call my friend. <laughs> I, I remember one day there was, a, there was one day in particular, I called unemployment. I want to say like 50 times, oh maybe more. It might have been near like a hundred to be complete because I would call, I'd get that phone drop sound and I would call again, I'd call again, I'd call again. And the problem was like every five times you'd get through. And so you'd start getting, and it's all fucking automated, which is a nightmare. Right. I just want to speak to someone. So you'd get through the, them asking you your secure social security number to verify your name and age and date and all that stuff. Uh, then you'd have to go through the jobs that you have and you, you have to go through these loops and then you'd get to a menu uh, prompt that would say, we're sorry, everyone's busy with calls and they drop the call. Oh, and so God. that would be like call six or call 13. So you still have these moments of like, uh, I can probably get through if I keep calling. So I would spend, I mean, I'm sure it's in my phone record somewhere, but like I would spend hours, hours every day calling and eventually i just got burned out and i would i would then limit it to like the morning i would call a few times when i would get up i would or i would make it like okay it's friday i'm gonna do the big calls today or or tuesday or whatever my day was where i was supposed to call um and it it took me i think i finally got through to someone after they did that whole thing where they like revamped the whole program and i think it took me I finally got through when I was 
was I back in New York by the time I might have been back in the New York by the time I actually got through, which means it was eight or nine weeks oh of God. me trying to get through to unemployment. It was a nightmare. There was there was, a, you know, and this was in the middle of the really the darkest time in New York when I wasn't even sure if or when I was going to be able to go back to New York. So, I, mm. you know, all so the mindset of that was just horrible because, you know, you start realizing that this like very loose uh, June return date that they're saying for Broadway or theater is not actually going to happen. So you start to feel crestfallen about like what your career is, what your life is. And then on top of that, you're not getting any money. And this program that's supposed to be supporting you is not, you can't even reach them. You can't even talk to anyone. So then you don't even know if you're like going to get approved or not, you know? So it's, it's just the amount of stress that was involved in those 10 weeks over whether or not I was going to get unemployment was just like, I'm so happy to be on the other side of that. Cause it was a nightmare. It, it speaks, I think, also to this issue that, you know, there was recently an open letter that was penned to the Senate on behalf of funding the arts. Um, mm. How much funding do you think the arts should be getting? Should, should we, you know, I remember when I did that lab in uh, at Lincoln Center, the, the, the French directors were talking about how their productions are fully funded by the government, fully. The thing that really fucked me up and the thing that was really great for me about working in Europe was that you got to see countries not just like programs and theaters you got to see like countries supporting the arts I remember I was doing a show I think it was the shipment yeah I was doing the shipment in Hamburg Germany and I ended up befriending this guy who was part of the resident company at this theater there called the Thalia Theater. And he was explaining to me that like they get many of the actors there, not all of them, obviously, but like many of the actors get employed by theaters for like two year contracts or something like that. So wow. they they're they're employed. I think he was doing Wojciech at the time, performing in mm -hmm. Wojciech and then rehearsing like two other plays. And I think he did like eight performances of Wojciech that month, the month. And while he wasn't performing that because that was in rep, he would be rehearsing two other shows and he knew he was gainfully employed for at least two years. And he was like one of the junior actors there. Hmm. So and I just remember being like, oh, dude, you're like however old he was at the time, like 26 or 27, and you are able to live as an artist without the stress of what my next job is. Am I going to be able to eat tonight? Am I going to be able to do this? So that you are able to like live your life as a normal person. And that's because your country recognizes that the arts is not only like a noble uh, profession that you should be pursuing, but that it's also like an important cultural institution that we should be supporting. Yeah. So there's just a completely different mentality about the way, you know, the way uh, British theater, you know, and mm -hmm. the British theater yeah. system has its own problems too, but like there's so much money that's just poured into theater for theater's sake and the arts for the arts sake. And it, it's a tricky question to answer with regard to the American system, because like, you know, you asked me how much money should be pouring in. I mean, it, it's yes, absolutely. Flooding the industry with cash is necessary and important. What needs to shift though, is a whole paradigm around how we think about the arts and how we think yeah. about, 
you know, the, the arts is like the first thing to always get defunded or the first thing to right. always, you know, go away. But then you think about it and it's like, what the fuck did everyone do while they were sheltering in place for eight weeks or however long the fuck Watch they had to do it? Right. They're watching Netflix. They're they're going to Lincoln Center online and watching yeah. uh, the you know the the plays that are being put up. They're watching. They're listening That's to right. albums. The National Theater in the UK were they they put all their stuff on or they were putting a play uh, every week yeah. up on YouTube, which was thrilling. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. I, I remember watching the Frankenstein that they did and just being oh, yeah. like, this is so cool that like they're just putting this up and not even you know and and to their credit, Lincoln Center did did something similar where you could go to like YouTube and watch South Pacific, uh, you know, cause they do the Lincoln center presents the same stuff that they do with PBS. They were just making it available, which is incredible. But again, that was like a privatized thing. It wasn't like the city of New York funding it. It wasn't like the cunt, the national endowments for the arts funding it. Right. I mean, it, it could be the source of national pride in the way that it is in other countries. Yeah. yeah, taking care of artists, Absolutely. not 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 feeling like a, you're a piece of shit. Also, that you're doing this with your life, or, or that you need to apologize for for the career. Um, uh, what's going on with what's going on with mom? So uh, a couple of weeks ago, my mother had a stroke, and oh, so uh, it was a minor stroke. It was minor. She's doing okay. It's one of those things where I feel like if anyone who doesn't really know her, uh, met her and was talking to her, they would have no idea that anything's happening. It's one of those things that like we and the family are like, okay, we see something's a little different, but again, it's not drastic. She's still cognizant. She still has her shit together for the most part. She has a little bit of difficulty doing some things now because you know, it, it's a stroke. It has an effect. The thing we were all terrified of was because, you know, COVID causes a lot of clotting and that's right. There's, people i mean you know rest in peace nick cordero you know these right. people who are dying are from these clotting yeah. issues um so a lot, i i personally was terrified that that's what was going on and you know my mother's in her 70s and yeah uh it was scary but ultimately and everything ended up being okay and i had this very strange uh, moment where i was I realized I was living in New York and I didn't really know why because the entire industry shut down. So there's no, there's no auditions happening. There's no, uh, there's no industry. There's no, the reason why I'm here, but, and, and there was no rent forgiveness there. The whole housing crisis that we're witnessing happening right now, yeah. I foresaw and I was like, you know, I'm collecting this unemployment and I'm collecting my uh the cares act funding which has been a godsend but eventually this shit's going to dry up and people aren't going to want to do it and they're not going to want to fund it so i was sort of i had this moment where i was like well i could either stay in new york and keep hemorrhaging money uh to be in a city where the industry is not actually happening i can't see any of my friends because we're all social distancing um and my roommate was basically living in his house upstate so he didn't really have a reason to keep the apartment either. So it was a really tough decision, but I ultimately decided that, you know, my family needs help. I need to come yeah. home and help with my parents and take care of my mom. And I, I can still go into New York. I can stay with my boyfriend. So that's kind of what I'm doing. I'm doing half the week in New Jersey and I'm doing half the week with my boyfriend in his apartment. I still have my apartment till the end of August, but yeah, it's, uh, 
it's been a major and majorly difficult life transition in in an already difficult year and i'm one of the lucky ones i i I didn't i haven't gotten covid knock on wood and i yeah i've i've maintained my health and my family for the most part is healthy Uh, my friends are for the most part healthy you know i'm i'm lucky and i know what i'm going through yes very difficult year so yeah um, well, listen, buddy, um, I hope that your mom makes a very speedy recovery and, um, I hope that she's okay. Uh, thank you for doing this with me today. I think there used, like you said, I think there are a lot of people doing these from high, their high school bedrooms right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, there are, there absolutely are. Um, um I am, yeah. uh, I'm very, very happy for your success. Um, I'm excited about what you're going to do next, uh, regardless of whether that's going to be, on Broadway. Same to or... you, by the way. Same to you. I, I I realize that this has been a love fest on me, but I, I have been following the stuff that you've been doing. And, you know, I'm freaking obsessed with your family and the babies. <laughs> I, you know, it's the, the cool thing about this industry. The hard thing is that you meet so many people. But the cool thing is that you meet so many people and you get to watch them grow and live these amazing lives, even if you're not really a part of it. And then you get to reconnect the way we are now. I've been having, this has been really getting me through in a really, really great way. I've been very much enjoying doing these and reconnecting with people. Um, Thanks, man. Thanks for doing it. Um, Stay healthy. Thanks, man. You too. I appreciate it. I love you, buddy. Thanks for asking me. Love you too. To everyone out there, if you listened all the way to the end of this fifth episode, I want to say thanks for listening. You're killing it. Give us a subscribe and those sweet high star ratings, a nice comment, and we'll return the favor by bringing you even more quality content in the future. Stay tuned because we've got five more incredible episodes, including interviews with Melissa Fumero, Ryder Doyle, Sarah Paxton, Christine Woods, Tembi Locke, Vinnie Chibber, and Elna Baker, to name more than a few. Our sound engineer is Christopher Frontiero, and our series composer is Cormac Bluestone. Our series graphics editor is Dan Olszewski. Should call someone on the on the East Coast, an East Coast friend that I haven't talked to in a few months. That always feels good. Pick up where you left off. How's things with you? Things with me are good. Yeah, we're older now. Yeah, we've got kids. Yeah. Oh, oh, the kids are crying right now. Okay, yep, mine are too. All right. Well, you know, yeah, we'll let's talk again. Let's do this more often. Yeah. All right. We'll talk. We'll talk next week, maybe. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. All right. Okay. Hey, love to your. What's your wife's name? Okay. Your oldest. What's their name? Okay. Okay. Great. I love you, man. Thanks for listening. See you next time.